You're listening to Big Table, a podcast about books and conversation, presented by Invisible Republic, Hattonbeard Press, Dub Lab, and Gold Diggers in Los Angeles. I'm your host, JC Gable. For each episode, we speak to one author about a singular book in a long-form interview. Each interview is then followed by a brief reading, sometimes from the same book being discussed, sometimes by a like-minded title and a different author. But every episode does retain a loose theme throughout and is inspired by the work of radio host and oral historian Studs Turkle. Thanks for listening. From the acclaimed author of the graphic novel Sabrina, Nick Dernasso's third book, Acting Class, published by Drawn and Quarterly, creates a tapestry of disconnect, distrust, and manipulation. Ten strangers are brought together under the tutelage of John Smith, a mysterious and morally questionable leader. The group of social misfits and restless searchers have one thing in common. They are out of step with their surroundings and desperate for change. The class sinks deeper into their lessons as the process demands increasing devotion. And when the line between real life and imagination begins to blur, the group's deepest fears and desires are laid bare. Exploring the tension between who we are and how we present, Dernasso cracks open his character's masks and takes us through an unsettling American journey. Like Sabrina, which was the first graphic novel shortlisted for the Man Booker Prize, Dernasso's latest offering is extremely prescient in its study of our everyday existence and how we live now. His minimalist comic drawing style is cloaked in a cinematic haze of melancholy. His color palette is hued in realism, the kind that ropes you into a netherworld that is uniquely his. I should note that this is the first episode of Big Table centered around a graphic novel. Some may find this odd seeing as how the show itself is focused on nonfiction books. But Dernasso's storytelling abilities pull so much from real life that one feels you are reading a meta-comic version of characters he's actually encountered. Here's my conversation with Nick Dernasso discussing his new book, Acting Class. It's such a great plot device to have this thing start with the acting class because it presents myriad ways in which to role play, leading you know the story down some you know some sinister uh, paths. But I also read that you you didn't really know where the story was going. You had enough characters going where you could let the story kind of follow its own path. Is is that accurate? Yeah, yeah. There there was a feeling of. Uh, like once those parameters were in place and once I had figured out who these, these class members were going to be, that it would kind of be like a kind of a looser, a looser narrative. And that I wouldn't, I wouldn't really know how to navigate those things unless I just sort of went blindly into it instead of um, overly plotting things out. So, you know, maybe it's a little bit of a messier kind of story, but I kind of, and I, I wrestled with that too, but I guess I justified it to myself when it was in progress that that was that was like the best way for me to to navigate a big a big kind of ensemble thing like this. That process isn't perfect, but it 
it led to things that I would have never um, figured out if I was to work in a different way or or write more and, and plan more at the start. I'm sure this has no bearing on the storytelling, but it may, it's just sheer coincidence. But I've been researching and wa- re-watching um, all these John Cassavetes movies. For some reason, while I was reading this, I, I thought of Cassavetes, maybe because, you know, he, even when he was making films, he was running these acting classes, and you, you would sort of try to figure out what led the people to get there and what they really wanted out of it, which is a recurring theme in the book. You know, it's sort of, why are we here? You know, what are we hoping to get out of this? And everybody has sort of a different take on it. Well, that's interesting. Um yeah, I, I mean, I, I did dabble in in kind of. Uh, I, I mean, I looked into those things and I, I read a bit on on the subject, and I, I guess I brought just like a passing knowledge to this. It, it was a big kind of insecurity starting out, not being able to pull from any kind of real experience and wondering if you know things would feel a little, a little false or a little contrived. And again, that's where I just kind of blindly jumped in and and just kind of hoped that I could navigate it as it, as it went along. And yeah, the story quickly, you know, turns away from any kind of real practical acting lessons anyway, and become just more about these kind of vague, I guess you could call them self-help or kind of support group activities or something. And I just kind of skirted around the whole subject of an acting class. Well, I think like your last book, you've you've once again created a very prescient work that I think a lot of people can identify with coming out of something like COVID. I mean, was that, I mean, the concept for this, the acting class, I mean, was that sort of more generally born out of something like COVID or did you already have the idea way previous to that and we're already kind of working with it? Yeah, I had been, I I think I had hit on, on that idea like in 2016 or 2017 when I was working on Sabrina, there's always kind of a nervous searching, like a certain part of my brain is kind of dedicated to just kind of searching through different things to figure out what'll come next. And and that was for a while there that it just became, uh, it just landed on an acting class. So that was well before COVID. And then, you know, I, I started on the book in 2018. So by the time the lockdowns came, it was like, you know, maybe, maybe halfway finished. And yeah, I could see there's, there's kind of a strange connection to COVID um, into being isolated and, and a lot of people losing their kind of um, community or their community changes in some way or their workplace setting permanently changes or, or disappears completely. I think I had gone through a sort of a similar transformation a few years earlier where I I suddenly found myself at home drawing comics all day, which I had never really planned for. I had been pretty pretty content just just working a part-time job up to that point. And then suddenly I was I was home alone uh in this kind of unusual situation. And I guess I guess in that way the book was acting class was kind of kind of a good thing to work on or or maybe that's why I subconsciously kind of landed on that subject at this point in my life 
it sounds like, you know, you are, you know, one of the lucky ones now where you really can focus on just doing your work. It, was that really just with this last book that you've been able to sort of block out other things and, and just kind of wake up and, and do this really more or less full time? It was, I was slowly leading towards that because, yeah, I was working at the button company in Chicago and um, I was still working there when I started on acting class for a good long while through 2019. It was just a very natural transition from like several days a week to like maybe one or two days a week to like filling in here and there. And then COVID was kind of the the stark dividing line where at that point when they when they would call looking for shifts i would uh i i just kind of made a clean break and said you know i don't feel comfortable coming in and then it just kind of slowly faded away and it, it just made more financial sense just to to focus on this book the the enormous privilege that comes with that is something that is is very daunting and and i don't take it lightly and I've kind of tried to figure out how to navigate that too as like a working artist where the process of putting this book out feels a lot different than the previous two books because, you know, when Sabrina came out and got a lot of attention, I was very grateful to have a a day job to go to that kind of centered me and and sort of put things in perspective a little bit. And um, it's, it's just a little different now just being home. I'm uh, trying to figure out how to uh, balance those things out. No, I completely understand the, you know, the dichotomy you're talking about, just having a, you know, a way to compartmentalize the, the creative process and then have this sort of other job you go to with your, where you work with your hands or you're doing something very mechanical in a way. Uh, it's good you know, to decompress and be able to go back and forth between those two things. Um, to go back to, you know, I guess where you started, I, I read that you, you you really started experimenting with drawing comics based on your love of heavy metal album covers uh, that your brother had been into. I think that was in DT Max's story, which I guess would have come out around the time of, of Sabrina. But is that sort of the origin story of, of kind of where you began, uh, you know, with regards to doodling in notebooks and, and drawing comics? Yeah, I think that was definitely a factor. I mean, my brother and I and all our friends were were very much, you know, metalheads as as young teens. And I think it was just kind of the most, you know, and kind of the limited scope of of what you can get your hands on in, in suburbia. That was like the most intriguing or kind of left field. And then I, th- I think there was just something cathartic about just the aggressive nature of a lot of that music and and kind of the morbid visuals and it felt like kind of a a dark but perversely fun world that was opening up and and then kind of the visuals went hand in hand with that and i mean there were other things too i mean lots of cartoons um not so much comics but um just just art and a lot of different mediums but i think maybe there was some very early notion that there are there are people out there who make this artwork and i don't know if they you know if they get paid for it or what or if it just it just kind of comes out somehow in this kind of mysterious way and that was kind of intriguing like you know who draws these these t-shirts for these bands or these these record covers that i'm seeing at at the record store 
I think the other thing that I'm really drawn to with your work is is how you kind of document, you know, middle class and work. You can even say working class people, and this sort of idea of ordinary existence. And I think it's what makes your work to someone like me who's not sort of immersed in the underground comics world or the graphic novel world. I think in a lot of ways it's more accessible because I I can almost see the same storytelling devices that happen with great prose novelists um, writing about certain types of people. You know, in your case, it sounds like up until this most recent book, a lot of the stuff was, you know, based on details of your own life that you were turning into these stories. Is that sort of a fair assessment prior to acting class? Yeah, I think that's fair. I mean... Beverly, my first book, was a conscious, like, I was fresh out of art school and kind of made this conscious decision that, you know, I was young and didn't have any real meaningful life experiences, and I should revisit a familiar realm to some degree or something that I felt like I could write about with some authority even if it's like relatively unimportant like these places are specific to me or i I know them and if i just kind of stay in that world then hopefully it will it will translate and i think that was probably probably a good choice for that time i guess sabrina was somewhat of a continuation of that there were there were elements that I could kind of easily imagine or things that I knew about personally. I think there there was maybe a period of like accepting that that's the lane I should be working in after a few years of kind of going, going to art school and absorbing a lot of different things and being expi- inspired by a lot of different things, but having to accept that, you know, I don't like, you know, seeing something that's really imaginative or expressive and, and kind of accepting that that's, that's not the way my my brain works and and to do something like that would be kind of false and i still kind of will get tripped up about that especially when i'm about to embark on a new book i'll have all these notions about about the way it might come out or or the way i would kind of want to expand into a different realm entirely and i'm i'm just not the type of artist that can really do that which is fine I've also noticed, you know, you've said that you start with a script in a way and then you panel things out. I mean, is that, I mean, I don't, I, I, I too am a writer, but in a different mode. Have you always worked like that? And is that generally how, you know, graphic novels and comics in general work? Or is your process, you know, a bit different, you know, starting with the, the words, the text, and then doing the, the sort of, the, 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 I guess the comics and the drawings second? I I don't think there's any real hard and fast rules about it cuz you know it's not a it's not a streamlined process uh the way I guess you would call them mainstream comics which I don't actually know anything about might be produced where you know there's kind of a set there's a publishing schedule and there's a writer and a penciler and an inker and a colorist and and possibly other people along the way assisting in the process so like a lot of cartoonists I know, I guess I'm circling your question. The simple answer is that, you know, there's a lot of different approaches and I don't think there's any like real 
strong philosophy about what's the right way to do it. Like, I mean, I know Chris Ware doesn't script anything out before he, he just like does all the writing on the page in pencil and then other people, you know, will script every line really meticulously before they sit down to draw. And yeah, I can think of friends as examples who, you know, one person works one way and the other, like couldn't be more different. Yeah. You just hope, I guess that your approach is, is natural or it's like fleshing out the ideas in a way that's, that's natural to, to you. You actually segued into something that I wanted to get into later, but it's it's a perfect time to bring it up, which is that I guess the elder statesmen and elder stateswomen of the comics and illustration world that have you know taken uh, a liking to your work, most notably Ivan Brunetti. I, I'm I'm familiar with his work. I don't know him personally, um, but I know that you had him as a professor and that he was an early a champion of your work. And that has led to, you know, a comradeship with with others. Chris Ware, you mentioned earlier. Um, I'm probably going to botch your last name, but uh, is it Kim Deitch or is it Deitch? Oh, it's Deitch. Yeah. It's Deitch. Yeah, I, I mean, I've just seen, um, you know, I mean, you're, you've really uh, emerged, you know, as like one of the singular, I think, artists in this medium of your generation. And, uh, you know, I, I can't help but think, you know, seeing... Um, yeah, this elder statesman, elder stateswoman sort of generation coming out and, uh, you know, and sort of not just heaping praise, but sort of uh, championing, you know, you and what you're doing. Um, you know, it's it's endearing to kind of see that sort of stuff, because I know in other lines of artistic creativity, some people are not as, uh, you know, are more competitive, maybe is right the right word. Um, and it seems like there's a real kind of comradeship that you have with this sort of older generation of of artists. Yeah, I mean I appreciate sometimes I I lose sight of, you know, all the great friends I've made that that I would have never, you know, been able to meet if not for for making art and that's that's a really nice a, a really nice kind of thing. But I mean that said, you know, there are a lot of different approaches to making comics and I, I'll be the first to, you know, acknowledge that, that my method, you know, I always thought of what I was doing as, as pretty, I guess the most charitable way of putting it is that it's like an acquired taste. It's not, I, I never thought it would have any kind of crossover appeal. Um, I think Sabrina kind of mixed that up for me where I wasn't quite sure how this fit in or, or why this thing was getting getting the attention or being talked about in a certain way, I ultimately landed on that. I think it was just a bit of a fluke of, you know, the, a certain type of book at a certain moment that people could write about. And now I'm trying to figure out where to go. Let's get into that for a second, actually, because I, I was sort of realizing that in some ways, like the, the, I guess you called it an outlier, Sabrina, that, you know, some of the success from it also seemed to be somewhat of a headache. You know, the sort of debate raised by the Booker nomination. Yeah. It's it's kind of one of those debates that's left to internet think pieces, unfortunately. But I see how it sort of, you know, could be kind of an anxiety-ridden thing for you, you know. And it certainly seemed like it was because you were suddenly put in this weird position where you had to, 
you know, almost answer to this work when you had no intention of, you know, I mean, it was great to be nominated for this, this award, of course, but, but it also seemed to have thrust you into this awkward position where you had to sort of then have to comment on it, uh, as opposed to people just sort of taking in the work the way they normally would. Yeah. I mean, that, that was kind of my gut feeling about the whole thing. And then, but then when I'm, when I'm asked about it or talked about it, there's a risk of, you know, seeming ungrateful or just seeming like kind of, you know, just, I don't know, just being, being a jerk about it or something. Um, so I didn't really know how to talk about it at the time. And, um, I still don't really know. Yeah. I mean, what you said was true. That was kind of my feeling was that I'm, you know, I'm, I make, make, these books to sort of disappear, which, you know, conversely, they are pretty personal in some way, like the themes, like I, I have to kind of stand by them in some way or, or, or something. I can't have like a cool detachment about the whole thing. And, and I guess these things do kind of get to me. I mean, I, I guess what I wanted to say about just the whole nature of prizes and stuff is that, a lot of things growing up just never spoke to me because there was this air of competition around everything. Like I just like crumbled under the, under the pressure of being a student. Cause that felt like you're in competition amongst all these other people. And, you know, they're ranking you as a student and ranking your worth. And, you know, I hated sports for the same reason and clubs and just the nature of kind of popularity in general. And I don't, engage with social media at all and the most beautiful thing to me about art was that it's not a competition and that it's subjective and it's like they took the one thing that's really singular and special about making art and and put competition into it and that always seemed really absurd to me you know with with any kind of award amongst any across any medium and and i guess i don't understand why artists appreciate those things or celebrate them like i just i just can't relate to that that stuff at all and and maybe i'll kind of regret saying this but you know i have a lot of trouble with that with with that kind of aspect of being a, a working artist is suddenly i'm like it a lot of it is talked about as as like winners and losers and scores and ratings and stuff yeah i mean i think it's, unfortunately it's the ecosystem of entertainment in general across all mediums that uses, you know, awards and competitions to create drama, you know, which is then written about, you know, as a, I guess as a former member of the sort of media pool. And, you know, now I, I work in, in sort of a medium where I'm more of like a behind the scenes person and an editor and publisher. Uh, but, you know, you see how much that becomes part of the storyline, um, you know, and sometimes the work gets lost in the, in the controversy over uh, my new show. Yeah. I wanted to change gears just for a second because I think the other thing that we haven't really talked about yet is the style of your work, which is, you know, very minimalist. There's a very cinematic kind of moodiness to especially the new book, you know, and the way that the, the gradation and the shading. And, uh, you know, and I'm wondering, you know, I guess, are you a big movie fan? Uh, and is that has sort of influenced your um, your comics in a way? Yeah, I think I think there was a lot more visual kind of osmosis from from movies 
in in TV than even comics probably. Or I'm just kind of I'm like processing visuals um, more like holding up a camera and and taking a snapshot. And I don't trace drawings, maybe very rarely, but um, or trace images. But I'll use a lot of reference photos, uh, like just thousands and thousands of pictures collected from the internet or from from various books and stuff and that just kind of makes things look more cinematic as you put it which i take as a as a compliment it, it for sure and was unless <laughs> unless kind of like a like a flat cartoony style which i i have to qualify doesn't isn't disparaging that at all that was one of the things that i i definitely tried my hand at in a lot of different ways in my kind of formative years and and just kind of had to accept that those those kind of more abstract approaches like i i could never figure out a way to make it work for me so i went with more of a like a process oriented kind of thing where i can draw in perspective and kind of figure out how a street actually looks as it as it goes off to a vanishing point it just fits my workflow like my work working state better and, and kind of helps me uh stay on point to like to like have those principles of of somewhat you know real realistic perspective to come back to the new book how did you know when you were done uh or had you just developed the the plot enough where you you knew this was sort of the natural ending point um, cause I know some writers, you know, they, they already know how it's going to end and then they just, you know, w- work their way through the middle parts. Uh, but it sounds like you didn't work that way with this. Uh, so since you didn't know where the plot was necessarily going, when did you know you, you'd sort of completed something that you felt created the, the narrative arc that you were looking for? I mean, I did, I did have an idea of the arc probably fairly early on in the process. Um, the class progresses through the first four sessions towards, you know, what I, what I was pretty sure was going to be the conclusion. And then it wasn't really a matter of working backwards. It was just a matter of like letting all those threads develop towards some kind of conclusion. So it didn't, I didn't just like stumble on onto an ending uh, or like just kind of work until I felt like it was finished. It was like, I kind of knew there, there's kind of a long, like a very long sequence at the end. Like, I guess you could say like the last hundred pages are kind of a long sequence or phase of the book, starting from the last, the last lesson towards the ending. And that required some, when I, when I sat down to write that, that was like with a little bit more structure. Like I had to think about how all these various threads were going to kind of resolve and I could start, you know, at that point I was kind of on a publishing schedule and had to think about, wrapping things up and and putting some restrictions on it because otherwise I think I I could definitely run the risk of once I've set up some characters just let them keep going for for a thousand pages and just never never publish again and just be happy to just keep working Acting Class by Nick Dernasso published by Drawn and Quarterly is out now in hardcover.
To support Big Table, go to invisiblerepublic.org and click on the Big Table link. There you will find many ways to financially support this podcast. And thanks in advance. Big Table is produced and presented by Hatton Beard Press and Dub Lab in Los Angeles and is written and edited by yours truly, J.C. Gable. Our sound designer and editor is Matea Baim. Our engineer is Jacob Ross. Special thanks to Alejandro Ale Cohen and Mark Frosty McNeil from Dub Lab for early encouragement and support, and to file sharing company WeTransfer for helping sponsor this experiment in audio storytelling. Big Table is also funded in part by Invisible Republic, a nonprofit arts organization based in Chicago, Los Angeles, and New York. You can find out more about their programming and publications at invisiblerepublic.org. Thanks again for listening.